0: Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lifcott-Hames, and today we're going to give you some important tips about interviews, and we'll talk about what's behind the increasing number of international students competing for spots at U.S. colleges. Plus, we'll be answering more of your wonderful questions. Joining me today is getting in expert Park Muth, who spent almost three decades at the University of Virginia as a dean and an admissions officer, and now advises students and families as a private college counselor. Hi, Park. Welcome. Hi, Julie. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you as always. So January and February is a prime time for regular decision students to complete the very last step of the application process, which is, in some cases, for schools that offer it or require it, the interview. And it seems like colleges send mixed messages about the value of interviews as part of the student's application package. So first, Park, if a college says an interview is not required, but then offers ways to interview, nevertheless, how should that be interpreted?
1: Well, I think it should be interpreted in the same way that if schools ask an additional question saying if you want to add additional information, you're not required clearly to do it, but they are giving you an opportunity to demonstrate who you are as a person and potentially to stand out in a way that might help your admission. While it's not required, if a school asks you, unless it's a real hardship, I would very much encourage students to take advantage of that.
0: Can you share a few basic do's and don'ts about interviewing? How do you advise your own students before they head off to an interview?
1: The easiest piece of advice I try to give to the students is try and have a conversation instead of an interview. And I know that's only replacing one word with another, but it does make a difference. You are approaching this by listening and not just talking. Uh, one of the things students do all too often is they have a list of things and sometimes they actually have it <laughs> written down that they they want to make sure the school knows about and they end up not necessarily listening to the questions they're being asked as much as they're looking for an opportunity to put forward something that they think is great about themselves. The other thing about a conversation is if if someone shows an interest in the interviewer, then it becomes much more relaxed so that if you walk in and you have a relaxed attitude, a good smile, a firm handshake, not a wet fish, not a crushing handshake, and you're comfortable with yourself and in the setting you're in, then the person across from you immediately relaxes. And you're like, this is going to be fun. So approaching it in a way that is just relaxed because people who are doing interviews, they're not out to fool you or get you. They just want to, they want to find out a little bit more about you. And I think that's pretty important for people to know at the front end.
0: I personally always loved the interview. I was a kid that interviewed well. I enjoyed doing it, but I also love now that I'm an older person, I love being on the other side. I love getting the chance to sit with a young person and take an interest in them and see if they can take an interest in the conversation that we're having. Back when I worked at Stanford, I was part of a set of people that advocated for the university to start interviewing candidates because as I was seeing more and more undergraduates come. You know, with very impressive test scores and GPAs, but not necessarily very familiar with their own selves or their own reasons for having studied all of this stuff or undertaken all of these activities, I thought, well, maybe the interview will give us an opportunity to really understand, is this kid actually behind all of the stuff they have done? Can they speak to it? Or has this kid essentially been manufactured to look the way that they do? I thought the interview would be a great way to kind of see the actual kid, literally and figuratively. And, you know, I think it is. All right, well, let's switch to the notion of a lot of international students uh, applying to attend college in the U.S., Um, I hear a lot about that today. I hear a lot of grumbling about uh, spots being taken, quote-unquote, by those kids, quote-unquote, as some people put it. Uh, I don't particularly think of it that way personally. You work with a lot of international students. What countries are you hearing from?
1: I've worked with students from all over the world, but the big numbers come from Asia, and the biggest by far is China, India, Korea, Singapore would be probably the big four in terms of sending undergraduates to highly selective schools. And there are a number of reasons some of these students find applying to U.S. schools a bit challenging. First of all, in many cases, just the concept of holistic admission is literally a foreign concept. That if you're in China, when you apply to colleges and universities, you take an exam called Gaokao. And the score you get on that exam determines whether you get in. The same can be said in Korea and a number of other places around the world. So when you try to tell these students, okay, if you're applying to the U.S., you may have great SATs, you may have great grades, but that doesn't mean you're going to get into one of these elite schools, that they're looking at you as a person and they're going to see how you write, your activities, your recommendations, your interviews, all the different factors that make you a person. And many of them get very nervous about that because they feel like they're at a distinct disadvantage in the process because for many of those students, English is not their first language. They've attended school systems that do not emphasize extracurricular activities. Some of them go to schools that their teachers do not in any way, shape, or form feel that writing recommendations is a part of their job description. They don't write recommendations for their students to go to college in their own country. Why should they write it for a student going? So that's a bit of an education. Now, some of the comments that you start out with that these kids are taking our spots or in a, in a negative way, I guess I'd want to address... What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I want to address that in a couple ways, because it's not like these kids are weak. I mean, I I always try and give people a, a quiz, and I'll say, what high school has the highest SAT average? Any high school. Some will say, well, maybe it's Stuyvesant in New York, or Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax, Virginia, these magnet high schools where... You've already had to earn a high test in order to get into the school so they tend to do very well on the SAT. But the highest SAT average in the world is Korean Minjook Leadership Academy, which is about an hour and a half outside of Seoul Korea. The average test scores for some students at some of the high schools in Singapore are above 2100 in China. you know it's fairly typical to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students scoring phenomenally well on tests where, you know, English isn't their first language in Korea or in China, and yet they're still doing better than the vast, vast majority of people in the United States.
0: What we offer here in the U.S. is world class, and the best students from all over the world have a keen interest, just as U.S. students do, in opportunity. So they're applying to attend school here.
1: Absolutely, and rightly so. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so should our students here in the U.S. view international applicants as competition? How do you how do you help students once you give them that quiz, and the answer is the Korean high school, how do you help them contend with that evidence of yet another set of applicants who are highly competitive, highly qualified by many respects? How do you help U.S. applicants think about this?
1: Well, one way would be to look at what is the percentage of international students at most colleges and universities. And if you look at, for example, the Ivies or Stanford, it's never going to vary that dramatically between, let's say, 8% to 15%. So it's a relatively small part of an incoming class that you are competing against. One of the questions that comes up increasingly is that virtually all of these students are full payers meaning they're not eligible for financial aid. And there are only five schools in the U.S. that offer need-based, full need-based aid for international students. So schools have been increasing the number of international students pretty dramatically in some cases. Berkeley and the UCAL system, for example, has brought in a lot of international students in the past five to ten years. They're full payers, but at the same time, the money they're bringing in is also allowing them to use that to pay for a lot of low-income students. So there's a trade-off. Berkeley and UCLA, for example, they're among the top schools, certainly in the top 30 schools, in terms of free lunch kids. So it's a, it's a balancing process. I mean, there are some schools, Michigan State, Purdue being two of them. They brought in over a 1,000 students last year, first-year students from China. That's a lot. That's one out of seven. (laughs) Um, But they're all full payers.
0: Yeah. So the economics of running a university or a college very much at play here. The value of having kids from outside of the U.S. in the mix of your undergraduate population, enriching and enhancing the experience of everybody. A really complicated set of questions. Now it's time for listener questions. Here's one from Erin, a mom whose family is stationed abroad.
2: Hi, my name is Erin, and I'm calling from East Asia because we're stationed there with military. And I'm calling because uh, my oldest son of four is graduating in May. He just got accepted to his first choice school, and they offered him a half-tuition academic scholarship which is fantastic, except that he wants to take a gap year because we're moving to another location overseas this summer, and he wants to move with us for the year, take some opportunities for that year with us, and then start school. What do you think the chances are that they will transfer the scholarship to the following year? It's a four-year scholarship, as long as he maintains a 3.0, but because he wants to wait one year, will they let it start the following year, or do you think that they won't, and what should I do or what should he do, to help his chances of getting them to agree to give him the scholarship the following year. Thank you.
0: Park, it seems to me the question is probably just ask, but maybe it's more complicated than that. How would you advise Aaron's son?
1: I think you're exactly right. Get in contact with the school and ask. And I know of some schools that would permit and in some cases even encourage a gap year and let the student roll the scholarship over and i know of some schools that won't do that so there is not a a single answer that's out there but if the school is hesitant to do it i would at least try to appeal at some level and say this is a great learning experience and an opportunity and is there any way there might be an exception made and maybe they'll do it or maybe they won't but ultimately they have to decide they're going to enroll this next fall that's not going to be jeopardized by trying to make a case for yourself.
0: Right. They're not going to snatch it back from you because you asked this question. Would you recommend phone? I mean, obviously, if they're stationed abroad, a phone call might be challenging with time zones, but what's your thought there?
1: I'm not sure it makes as much of a difference as seeing if there is a person who is in charge of that part of the admission process geographically. Some schools post that on their website, some don't. But a a phone call to say if, if it's not on the website, is there a person that's in charge of East Asia and then write directly to that person and I would make a good case. I mean a, a phone call that can go well, but I, I would think having the time to say, well, we're moving to X place and my son really wants to do a service project or whatever it is that he wants to do and sort of outline what the the plans are, and I think that's potentially more compelling.
0: And I'm thinking that most compelling would be that the son do this, that he write them, that he say first and foremost, "I'm thrilled to have been admitted. I feel so fortunate to have this scholarship. I can't wait to be a member of your community." and I've got this situation going on with my family. We're stationed abroad. We're moving yet again. I'd like to take a gap year for this reason. In other words, to remind them that he is committed beyond, you know, concern, that the fear a college might have when someone requests a gap year or a deferment is, are they committed Can we count on him filling this slot, you know, if we give him the year away? And so to reiterate up front that this isn't in any way about that, that this is, you know, the enthusiasm for the school and having been admitted is incredibly strong. And there's this wrinkle. Is that right?
1: Having the student do their own work and present their own case is wonderful advice. It just makes the point that this is what the student wants to do. And it's it's they're taking responsibility for it.
0: All right. Up next, here's a voice memo from a high school junior in Tucson. She has three questions, so we're going to break them up.
3: Hello. My name is Geneva, and I'm a high school junior in Tucson, Arizona. I attend Basis Tucson North, and I have some questions for getting in. On the podcast, you guys talked about how the best school for a student is one tier below the top tier of schools that they could get into. Since universities don't in reality fall into neat tiers, how should prospective students determine which are the most rigorous and selective institutions they can feasibly look at and which are slightly below that? Is it as simple as being above the 75th percentile SAT that schools report?
0: So I think what Geneva is referring to here is a comment we have made in the past about some research which suggests that it's the top students at every school, regardless of tier, that get the attention from faculty and the kind of best academic resources, which is perhaps an argument for attending a school below the top tier to which you've been admitted. Park, what do you um, what do you have to say to Geneva? Well,
1: one thing I'd want to put out there is that it's not an absolute rule that a student will have their best experience to go one tier below where they get into. I mean, I'm a believer that if a student gets accepted to a school, uh, the school is saying you can be a good student there. But I would put that piece of advice in not an absolute. As far as how to determine how selective a school is. Well, part of it is, is there a good college counseling office? And given that this sounds like a very academically oriented secondary school, I would imagine the guidance counselors have a lot of good information. They may, in fact, be on a system called Naviance, which many high schools use these days, which shows students not just their 75th percentile or anything else. It gives good information on students who have applied to a particular school with a particular GPA and testing and what's happened to them over a several-year period. Schools that do not have that, there is a website called parchment.com where students can enter in their information, and it will give a somewhat accurate Um, assessment of what the chances are to get into a particular school. But don't just look at the numbers. I mean, there are lots of students who are going to stand out, not because they have the best SAT or even the top GPA, but they may have a particular talent or other things. So I don't think that students should automatically say, there's no way I should even apply to this school unless I'm in the top 75%
0: or something like that. Here's Geneva's next question.
3: What are some of the ways to make the most of college visits, both when admission officers visit the high school and when students visit campuses? Are there specific questions that you found to be enlightening and don't just provoke the usual spiel?
0: The usual spiel. Gotta love you, Geneva. Enlightening, not just the usual spiel. Park, what's one way a student can make the most of a college visit?
1: Well, if they're actually visiting a campus, I... Very much encourage them to go to a class or at least set up an appointment with a professor, spend some time looking at the academics. The more time they, they can spend in a real academic situation talking with professors and students, I think the better off they are for determining if it's a good fit for them.
0: All right. And finally, here's Geneva's third question.
3: Finally, is it possible to apply to only one school with a binding early decision, such as Columbia, while also applying to a school with non-binding early action, such as University of Chicago? Even if possible, is this sort of front-loading preferable as a way to reduce stress later in the process? Thank you, and best of luck to all the getting-in seniors.
0: I love her enthusiasm for our seniors. That's great. All right, to Geneva's final question, Park. What do you think?
1: Geneva's asking some pretty good questions here. She's talking about, is it possible to apply ED and EA? And the answer is, in most cases, yes. There are some schools that will tell you they are early action restrictive. There are some that will tell you they only want you to apply early decision to them. So it's, it's case sensitive. Uh, but she's talking about front-loading and that, in fact, that's something that's happening more and more these days. More and more students are applying early action and early decision because the perception is, and in some cases the reality is, that it provides an advantage in the admission process. So it's having this snowball effect of more and more students are doing it because they see it as, as an advantage.
0: All right. If I'm not mistaken, I think BASIS, Tucson North, the school Geneva uh, attends, is a school that has done very well on the international PISA test, that internationally administered test many students around the world take, on which American students have not fared well, but some specific American high school students have fared well. What I'm trying to say is I think Geneva's attending a very, very special, wonderful school, Basis Tucson North, that has really provided an outstanding education for her. And it's not surprising to hear this very specific, detailed set of thoughtful questions um, coming out of a high school that prepares students so well. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me again today, Park. Well, thank you, Julie. And thanks to our listeners, Aaron and Geneva, for your excellent questions. There are lots of ways you can send us your questions and comments. We're on Twitter at GettingInPod. That's all one word, GettingInPOD. You can send us an email or voice memo to our email address. And that's GettingIn at Slate.com. And there's always our hotline where you can leave a message. That number is 929-999-4353. And please leave us a comment on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer, our executive producer is Laura Mayer, and Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames. And remember, it's not just about getting in. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, like iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book you might try out from Audible is Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Author Sherry Turkle investigates a troubling consequence of digital culture. Whether at work or at home, Too often, we find ways around conversation, tempted by the possibilities of a text or an email in which we don't have to look, listen, or reveal ourselves. If you want to listen to Reclaiming Conversation or many other books, Audible has it. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com slash college and use the promo code college.